0: Welcome to Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm in London with my co-hosts, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And in California, meanwhile, are not one but two guests joining us to talk about Lester Bangs and Cream Magazine. So a very warm welcome to Jan Yahelski.
1: Hi, and you pronounced (laughs) it so well. I was shocked. Sorry.
0: (laughs) And, And to Robert Duncan. Hello, Barney hi guys so lovely to have you here one of you in northern california and the other in well we were joking earlier grand parsons country palm desert first off jan tell us why cream magazine mattered so much
1: i think it was the one place at the time for people to feel like they belonged with their people a lot been made of, of we were like a bunch of misfits and outsiders and we really were. But the thing was, is we were all on the same quest and we were on the same quest as all the fans. It's, it's so funny. I was rereading some of Lester Bang's pieces this morning and he was always looking for something in, um, in the music like enlightenment, illumination, you know, a prophecy. And I think we all were like that. It. The funny thing was, is, and this is very specific to the people who were there. Duncan included, is Ben Edmonds, who used to be Mojo's US editor, used to say nobody at Cream liked one another, but we all had the same dream. And that was true, but we had the same dream as the fans, too. It's like we wanted to know more about these people, but we want to know what they knew. So that was really an important component. So that's what it was for me. I mean, Duncan, maybe not for you, but I think it probably was too.
2: Yeah. I mean, I liked, the folks there, by by and large, and became <laughs> close friends with the, a lot of them. Even Barry, I liked. You know, everybody was. The, everybody likes to to beat on Barry Kramer, who was the publisher of Cream. And I always, you know, he was good to me. I mean, he, he gave me all sorts of breaks, and uh, and he could be an asshole, but but if you if you confronted him, he would he 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 actually enjoyed that, as you know, he enjoyed fighting. I remember the day he came in and I had the most massively messy desk in, in history. And he came with, and with his arm and he just cleared the desk off. He says, God, you're a slob clears my desk off. So I got up and I, you know, I was 21 years old. I think what, this is ballsy. I went into his office and he's like going, no, no, no. And I just cleared his his desk. It's like, so if you, you know, so Barry was always the, you know, the one, the one person people will say, ah, oh, Barry Kramer was an asshole. But, you know, if I think if you knew how to deal with him or you dealt with him on that level, he wasn't such an asshole.
0: Are you saying your desk was even messier than Lester's? Because Jan wrote a great mm. piece in uh, 2014, I think, and you allude to. Lester's desk. In fact, let me read briefly what you said about Lester's desk. You said, we fought like siblings, mostly because he was so slovenly, rarely emptying his overflowing trash or throwing away the Coke cans with cigarette butts jammed into them. His typewriter was perennially covered with dirty t-shirts, girly magazines, or wrappers from the tacos he loved so much from Jack in the Box. (laughs) So let's have the truth. Whose desk was
1: messier? Lester's, because the smells, he had, he had living yeah. things <laughs> and he had, he didn't ever throw away the other half of the taco.
2: I'd have to cede to Lester just because, based on smell, based on clutter <laughs> and piles of crap, I would concede to no one. And, uh, but yeah, smells <laughs> Lester, because I did throw away my taco wrappers. <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's right. I'm glad but we got Lester, that cleared up.
2: <laughs> yes. Lester part of the experience of Lester was the smell. You know. That's
1: right. <laughs> when we
2: when we were in New York and I you know we lived right next door to each other we hung out all the time but I remember after his girlfriend left and there there was, he man there was always girls coming up there and I thought how could they deal with the smell? they obviously
4: dealt with it by leaving again if they had a succession of them
1: (laughs) you know Becky Tyner who was married to Rob Tyner the Mm -hmm. great lead singer of the MC5 she went to stay with Lester for a week and Rob said to her don't try to clean it just live with it you know I mean it was hard you forget that like the minute you say Lester that's what comes back it's such a visceral memory for me you know you think he was. was a if he was a ghost, wouldn't he come back with a smell?
2: You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that would, be the fir- <laughs> that would be the first thing you noticed would be this, a certain uh, aroma in the air. That's right.
0: <laughs> so it's 40 years since Lester died. And I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that he's, you know, almost the most famous, definitely the most famous rock writer in pop history. John, I mean, tell us. If you can, what made Lester such such a great writer?
1: You know, it's really funny because I think at the time I didn't know, none of us knew. I mean, given that we were a really small staff and we were trying to put out a magazine and extra magazines every month, I honestly didn't know. You know, I hardly had time to read his stuff. In hindsight, I read things he's written, and there's this perception of seeing things, in a different way. You know, even if he's describing Van Morrison as the, the fire plug of a man, it's not just his descriptions. It's like he sees within. It's like he's telling you what makes this guy's heart beat. It's like he's giving you these philosophies. It's like I used to have a math teacher that used to say garbage in, garbage out. Lester read everything and he absorbed it, so it would come out in his reviews or in his pieces that had nothing to do with rock. So he gave you this 365 experience of everything that he had ingested mentally. I really think it was his his scene, and the, what I'd said earlier is that he was looking for prophecy and rock and roll, so he looked much deeper than the rest of us. It wasn't the alliteration, like his jokey pieces, that people... When they ape him, that's what they ape. It was the things like in the Rolling Stone History of Rock, his essay on the British invasion. Yes. You know, it's that when he let his intelligence shine, that's what made him great. But he could do jokes. I mean, he was such a complex, complicated man with these these actually really congruent personality pieces. I mean, they worked well together.
0: Yeah, it's just such a natural stylist there's such a Mm -hmm. a, there's such a voice there isn't there i mean i mean there are many music writers who have great voices on the page but he just literally turned the tap on and this kind of stream of consciousness poured out i mean robert would, would you add anything to what jan just said so eloquently well he was
2: you know he was funny as hell i remember i would read his stuff and just i would laugh my ass off and i'll tell you what else he could type incredibly fast. <laughs> and I, tell you, I I arrived at Cream a, a, a total, you know, novice writer, almost a total novice writer. And I had this guy sitting about six feet away from me, and he was he'd be just bam, 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 bam. And, and I'm like this hunt and peck guy. That's just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and not only was the final product discouraging to a, a, a writer trying to find his voice and, and, and be funny and, and be insightful, but the, uh, the speed with which he could issue these, these pieces was just unbelievable. You know, he'd, he'd stay all night as Jan knows and he would, you know, Suddenly, it would be he'd have 60 pages, you know, mm. and and you know, about half of them would be gold, yes, and the rest would be like, what you know, the rest Silver. would be unintelligible, it's but half of it would be gold. And it, his, yeah. his, his ratio of, you know, typing to final product was, was really high.
1: It gave us all phobias, you know, that we thought this was how you were supposed to write. I mean, right. I, I don't know about everybody else, I do know. I always kept that to myself. And once Ben Edmonds was visiting me in California and he had stopped writing for a while, and I go, Why'd you stop writing? He goes, I don't know. I'm not Lester. I I can't type like that. You know, it's a type. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah. But, yeah. He,
1: but it, it just poured out of them. It's like it was fully issued, it was fully realized instead of, and he, I mean, he didn't rewrite much. You know, it usually came out the way it was going to go into the magazine. Most of the time,
2: really. You know, I, I remember at his memorial, his cousin, oh, I can't remember his name now. He's a oh, really Ben. Nice, uh, not, no, his nephew. Uh, yeah, Ben Catching. Mm-hmm. Ben. He told a story about there was a like a an abandoned house next to Lester's uh, apartment where he lived uh, or something nearby. And Lester would go over there into the abandoned house and right on the walls of the living room and the whole house. And Ben, I remember Ben describing, you know, eventually the entire house was covered in Lester's writing. Mm. And I thought, that's Lester, you know. There was not much membrane between, you know, his thoughts and, you know, words on paper.
4: You know, it does.
0: How influenced do you think he was by Kerouac and other beat writers? I mean, that's obviously an element there, and some of the proponents of new journalism, but he seemed to create something that was entirely his own. Yeah. I mean, is it fair or reductive to, to sort of point to the influence of of say Kerouac? I mean, to me, I, I, I think Bangs was a was a more disciplined writer, frankly, than Jack Kerouac. But shoot me down.
2: I think Jack Kerouac was influential on, there's a whole, yeah. you know, maybe 50% of writers at that time. You know, we, we grew up on that. So and, and Lester definitely had connections to Kerouac's style. But I, I think you're right. He he found a way to not be Kerouac. He found a way to be Lester.
1: Yeah, he didn't ape people. He didn't have rituals. He didn't, you know, when you're starting out to be a rock writer, you do these stupid Little things that actually get you started. Like you read other people's stuff and feel competitive and try to, and try to, you know, duplicate that energy or you read poetry stuff. He didn't do any of that. I mean, if anything, I always thought he. I thought he got his influences from jazz, the rhythms of jazz, that whole, or that staccato kind of thing. He, he loved Miles. He loved all the music I hated. I mean, we were always pretty much in opposition to the stuff we liked, except the Stooges. <laughs> I, I really think that's what it was, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, it's funny you mentioned. Yeah. So Detroit, obviously, we have to just, we have to talk about Detroit and mm-hmm. uh, Cream being based there and Lester moving to Detroit and you, Robert, moving to Detroit. Jan, I can't remember whether you moved to Detroit, whether you were a <laughs> Michigan native.
1: Yeah, they, I moved I moved down the street. Yeah, I'm, a, down the I'm street. a Detroiter. Yeah, I came from the suburbs, and that was downtown. I went to college right in the campus area of where Cream was. So.
0: Okay. So the Stooge. I mean, you know, the Stooge is so important in kind of Lester's work, like Lou Reed and Question Mark and the Mysterians and the Count yeah. Five. But Iggy, so this the interesting. The, yeah, yeah. It's interesting you said that the Stooges, you kind of, you could unite around the Stooges.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the Stooges, I, I, He so identified with Iggy, which is funny because Iggy was like this beautiful creature, sinewy, thin creature. But Lester, whatever that fire inside, maybe it was the only child-isms because they were both only children who had spent a lot of time by themselves inventing a world. But that was his guy besides Lou. You know, I mean, he played the Stooges constantly, wrote about him constantly. I I don't know, in that first wave of of the Cream staff, all of us had an Iggy thing. You know, I mean, there was just something. He was more of a symbol of Detroit than anybody else, of any of the kind of music. It was that rough, like that whole raw power, that sound of like the Ford factory thing. That The MC5 had it too, but they didn't refine it, and it wasn't as arty. It wasn't as... Is thought out. So um, I don't know. That was his guy. I mean, I I remember when Iggy came over to the offices to see him. And this is in the Cream documentary. It's been so overtold, but he came in to see Lester. And Barry Kramer, the publisher, stopped him and he goes, Where's your manners, motherfucker? Don't you say hello? And Iggy just stood there on his way to Lester's desk. And Barry Kramer took one of Lester's full trash cans and dumped it over Iggy's head. So it was oh like I God. said, it. we all had Iggy things. So.
0: <laughs> Mark, do you remember, I mean, from this side of the pond and occasionally seeing American magazines, do you remember when you first, you know, kind of like noticed the byline?
4: No, I mean, it was just the name. I mean, the, the name think, is so brilliant, isn't it? Well, well but, yeah. but, but it's also, I think it's worth remembering, in some ways, he was a bigger influence in English and British music writing than he was mm-hmm. in American music writing. I think the whole irreverence and toughness of the 70s NME is straight out of Leicester in a way that Rolling Stone magazine didn't, Take on and yeah. so on and so forth. You know, people like Nick Kent were quoting Lester Bangs all the time. i mean, you know, when you're reading in seventy three seventy four, and also Lester did write for the enemy. Unfortunately, he wrote as a feature writer, the enemy, and I think that that was his weakest area as a writer. I think he was a great reviewer, a really, really great reviewer, but I don't think he's a fabulous feature writer. I think that's a fair point.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, I think that that's so true. It, it's so funny because. One by one, the enemy staff would show up in our Birmingham, Michigan house, you know, Nick Kent stayed for a couple of weeks. I mean, I always remember months later, we found a half-eaten piece of chocolate cake beneath the, the curtains in the living room. <laughs> but um, yeah, let, let's just fit in with that kind of mentality. It's like, I remember years, years, years later in the 90s, I, I was supposed to do a Neil Young piece, and David Frick told the uh, publicist... I, I, I shouldn't be able to because anyone from Cream didn't have that kind of ethos. But the ethos did fit right in with NME. You know, it just worked. Because yeah. you could just go wild. I mean, you guys just went out there, you know. Rolling Stone, you had to be very politic. It had to be friends of Jan's. Like if Absolutely. Jan Winner didn't like it, it wouldn't go. I mean, Robert, when you guys
0: were at, were at Cream, did you think of Cream as in any sense a sort of anti-Rolling Stone? Or is that too sort of binary
2: oh no i think absolutely you know and yeah. uh and it was yes. uh and uh <laughs> you know you, one of the things that you you talked about detroit and one of the things about cream was i you know without detroit cream would not have been cream mm-hmm. the people of detroit who i mean there there's a there's some cities in this country and maybe they still have personalities and, you know, New Orleans is obviously one of them and and Detroit is too. And it was, and it was this place full of, you know, I, I was coming from New York and I thought, you know, oh, it's just a bunch of hicks. Even I was born, I was born in the Midwest, but I, <laughs> I spent most of my life in New York. And, uh, but when I, I thought, Oh, they're just a bunch of hicks, but they were these, they, it was just a different breed of people. And it was all driven by this you know it was this big giant company town for the for the auto in no matter what industry you worked mm-hmm. in you were somehow plugged into the auto industry yes. and depended upon it so that was it and then the and they developed this different kind of music and I remember when I was going to university in New York, and I would be down at the Astor Place subway station. It was the only place in New York I ever saw Cream magazine on sale. It was on the newsstand down there, and I would look, and they would have Iggy on the cover, or they would have the MC5 on the cover, or they would. I remember they had Grand Funk on the cover. I'm like, what the fuck, you know? <laughs> so to me, but to me, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't ex- overly excited about going to Detroit and working for Cream, because I thought, well, it's, the, it's that Detroit magazine. It's all about Detroit. And, of course, I didn't really understand it until I got there.
4: I mean, it, it, it's, it's great. I mean, we recently got on board Frank Bach, who was in mm. the, the Up, and he's now joined us at rocksback Pages as one of our writers. And you read his writing for The Ann Arbor Sun, and so on and so forth. And it's got this energy that you just don't really sort of find anywhere else. And there's, there's something that, that cream is just such a natural outgrowth of the Ann Arbor scene, John Sinclair stuff. I mean, I was just looking at this copy here. The first thing you see is in the letters page is a letter from John Sinclair ranting about cream. <laughs> 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 brilliantly. Yeah. And so, I, you know, in my job at Brock's Back Pages, hoovering this stuff up, I can really see that sort of line of, of extraordinary street energy and sort of, Yeah. yeah. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I used to say to Kramer, I said, "Why don't we you know, we're never going to be taken seriously enough if we don't move to New York." And he was like, "Oh no." Man, he understood it. He would say, "No, this is this is part of the deal." And when when people people come here, you know, on pilgrimages to, you know, like Nick Kent and other NME writers and mm-hmm. and just everybody. He says, when people come here, you know, they're here, they're not in New York. They're at Cream and and, yeah. and uh but he was right. I mean, that is part the secret sauce has a lot to do with Detroit.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. it's that abuse of love. Abuse is love in Detroit. That's like <laughs> one of our, our <laughs> sayings. It, what you have to really be worried about when you meet a Detroiter is if they're nice to you. Because that's a bad thing. <laughs> so, I mean, it's from the reviews. It's to like the confrontational nature of the MC5 or the Stooges or Ted Nugent. You know, whatever it is, it's like that's just that's just woven into the DNA of all yeah. of us, you know. And mm, people do mm. come. I mean, Lester came. I was shocked that Lester showed up, you know, and wanted to be there, you know, or Ben Edmonds too. So
2: and then he became the biggest. Yeah, he he would wear his Detroit sucks t-shirt, but he was the biggest booster of Detroit, and he he spent six years there, seven years, yeah. whatever yeah, it was, yeah.
0: Still not okay. I wanted to quote from one of the pieces that we're going to feature on the homepage as part of, you know, the Lester special. It's a, a lovely piece that Richard Regal, another cream writer, wrote a few years after Leicester, I think 1990. In that issue of Throat Culture, that you, oh, I yeah. think, Jan, right. you contributed to for yeah, sure. I did. Robert, you were probably in the two. But it's it's this lovely quote where Richard says, "If Fire and Rain" by James Taylor. If Fire and Rain was a harrowing piece of music, then I must be deaf, dumb, and blindsided. But precisely at that historical moment, I discovered Lester's magnum opus essay. James Taylor marked for death, which, <laughs> which not only exterminated JT's mushy cringe once and for all, but which told me at last that I wasn't wrong when I loved the animals and the young rascals and Lou Christie in the 60s. And then he says, the punk reaction against the folk-hearted prep school boys who dominated the culture's critical establishment had begun. So I, I think it's a very it's a lovely way of making the point that, that Lester, in a sense, did, did sort of declare war on, you know, that, all, all of that sort of Rolling Stones, yeah. singer-songwriter, Laurel Canyon mm-hmm. sort, sort of thing. I mean, is, is that how you remember it? And did you think of it like that at the time?
1: Oh, God, yeah. you know. It's, it's so funny that, you know, that's so well said, and I never thought of it like that, you know, because he would have his favorites, but they were always women. You know, they were always some folky woman like um, what was that woman, that Canadian woman who did Christmas albums and her first name was Anne? Oh, my God.
2: Oh, Anne Murray. Oh, Anne, Anne Murray. 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 Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was big on it. He was big on bringing up Anne Murray. Now, that's just one of his provocations. you
1: know? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I mean, he a was a terminal
0: romantic, wasn't he? I mean, oh, and we yeah. can imagine him having a kind of crush on on Anne
2: Murray or something. Well, he, like he was a terminal provocateur, is what he was. Okay. He, <laughs> he knew, you know, how to get a rise out of people than to mm. champion Anne <laughs> Murray or or yeah. John Denver. Yeah, wasn't there that
0: or... called John David Denver is God? Yeah. Yes. yes yeah, as yeah.
2: A frame, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> John Denver not
0: marked for death.
2: (laughs) I I had heard about the John Denver is God story from Lester and and whatever. And he had said, I got this thing. And, and, and so I remember when I became managing editor, I said, I said, you, can you give me that thing? I'm, I'm curious to read that thing. And that was one of the things that was like 80 pages, probably wrote it in a night and a half. And it was, you know, half drivel and half brilliant. And that was one of the first things I got to edit of Lester's as much as you could edit Lester, but it was like, Hey, Lester, we could, we could use this if we just cut off you know, the, the second half or something. Yeah. And, and we did, we used it as a cover story for, that was our, mm-hmm. the Christmas, we did a Christmas issue and it was, and John Timber on the cover as the Christ <laughs> child.
0: Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, so there's a lot of stuff that's humorous, and then there's all the kind of like, you know, championing garage rock versus James Taylor and so forth. But the, the, the piece that I really converted me for life to the kind of bangs cause was that extraordinary piece about astral weeks that he wrote for the, mm. the grill marcus stranded anthology it was the album that lester would have taken to a desert island and i mean it's so personal and so passionate and so beautifully sort of poetic and and so i always kind of remember that that for all the sort of neo beat stuff going on and the and the just the, the sort of amphetamine kind of rant speak there's such and, you know, you talked earlier at the very beginning, John, about this kind of quest. And that piece in particular is just is one of the greatest articulations for me of 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 why we're all so obsessed with music. I mean, if you if you oh. ever falter in your in your sort of adherence to me, read that essay and it's just so heartbreaking. It's so beautiful.
1: Oh yeah. my god. He lets his wounds out, but again it's that thing that he had where he's looking for illumination from an artist, and and what does he say? He's got some line about, if if not full illumination, like a glimpse of it. And I've got this quote that it's, I have taped to my my computer that I look at now and then. It's like, it's like, don't ask me why I obsessively look to rock and roll bands for some kind of model for a better society. I guess just that I glimpsed something beautiful in a flashbulb moment once and perhaps mistaken it for prophecy have been seeking its fulfillment ever since. And to me, that sums up Lester. He was always looking for the quest, for the answer, for the word. I mean, everything that he says is in that essay about astral weeks. And I didn't even know he was that... You know, he hit his wounds really well because he was boisterous and big and his his gestures were always big. Like if you watched Almost Famous, Philip Seymour Hoffman really captured that take up a lot more space than you're really allotted kind of thing. Yeah. So so you wouldn't know he was on this kind of quest unless you really knew him, because he wasn't that. I don't know. He he wasn't that that confessional with his friends. Did you find that Robert? Cause you had a different kind of relationship. I'm sure Yeah, we had
2: a, we had an intense drinking relationship. You did. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I, he, he had some, I remember, and you see it in definitely, you see it in the uh, Van Morrison piece, which I love too. I also love that village voice, you know, obit or he did on when Elvis, oh, yeah. on Elvis, and, and the end of that, you know, I don't say goodbye to Elvis. I say goodbye to you, you know? And it was just like, wow, what a great way to view the pop audience as, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're really a community. And when we lose a guy like Elvis, we've lost our, uh, a big connection. So, but I, I, uh, uh, God, what were we talking about? <laughs> 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 oh, I know. I know in the, in the, uh, the Van Morrison piece in the Astral Weeks piece, you know, he talks about pedophilia and he gets he and, and he was like, oh, my God, it's you know, he he gets all into this. And I remember mm. when it's I mean, it's not really funny, but but I remember when they when a, a story came out in New York that they were ma- they were making snuff films and they were premiering mm. a a snuff film. This is when nobody had heard of snuff films before. And they were premiering a a movie called Snuff on Forty Second Street in New York, and I remember Lester just just blasting off. He was so horrified that such a thing because he he believed it. He wanted to believe it. He wanted to believe that that things could be that dire that we were actually that that there was actually a movie company would put out a snuff a film where they killed somebody. So in a way, you know, he he wanted to see the darkest things in uh, human nature. So I it's beautifully done. You know, I don't know if it's, I don't know how much connection it has to the reality of the characters in the Van Morrison song or, or even, or to Van Morrison. But yeah. Lester insisted on probing the worst. Well, I'm caught one more time.
0: Up on Avenue. In the rockcritics.com interview that we're running also as part of the feature, Robert, you talk about his generosity. And, you know, I, I have my own little Lester story, which absolutely tallies with that. I did make a pilgrimage to see Lester on 6th Avenue. I don't know whether you were still living in the apartment you know next door you probably were this was 1981 and I just called him up I must have got his number from someone like Nick Kent and I just called him up and you know he basically gave me an afternoon I mean he didn't have to do that who was I I'd barely been I'd been writing for an ME for about six months do you know what I mean Yeah. Um, yeah yeah he just was really sweet to me yeah. and sat me down in that kind of crazy pile of records and played all his favorite no wave stuff he was just raving about teenage jesus and lydia and dna and oh you got to hear this and he'd rip the record <laughs> off and put another one on and then, let's yeah. go out and that you know yeah. uh, he was he was just uh i i, I Genuinely remember him as just so warm and yeah. and and gracious with this little turd who'd washed up in New yeah. York, <laughs> you know. And so it was really nice to read that. And I think you both said things about his. I mean, Nick Kent called his obituary I think titled "It Ballad of a Loud Hearted Man," which I thought right. was was uh-huh. really lovely. You know, yeah.
2: I think he was lonely, and he loved fans. He loved adulation. You know, he was a guy who made fun of rock stars for, you know, thinking they're above the rest of us and always trying to bring down the rock stars. But he, oh, man, nothing like a fan to Lester. He would talk to any fan. And he was he was lonely. He was yeah, lonely. i he, he used I don't to think call it,
1: up sub- subscribers. He would take they would, you know, write right in and he would find their phone numbers and call them late at night. I mean, we had like enormous phone bills, mostly from Lester calling people up at night because he was lonely and he wanted to help. He wanted to create his own little—it's like his version of the Kiss Army of little Lesterites, you know? Like he thought it was a noble. I mean, he wrote that essay. He wanted to make more, more of him because he loved, yeah. he loved the job. But it was really sweet to overhear, you know,
0: yeah, him yeah. doing that at night. John, how do you remember Lester? leaving detroit i know robert played a part in that but how do you remember uh that winding? oh
1: me? i left first so, you um, did
0: leave first i wasn't did you go yeah, to california then you went, yeah it was yes. like a
1: defection like all three of us left like we left bang 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 it was like right. i think i left in march and then you left in the summer right bob and then let
2: I, I forget it was april or may maybe this is 76 yeah. Is is 76 or yeah, yeah. i guess I, I so yeah
1: i don't, I don't I don't know why I mean you know it it wasn't like we planned it It wasn't choreographed it was just like it wasn't the fun had run out it wasn't that music had changed it was just one of those happenstances I you know I met somebody on a Led Zeppelin tour and I thought I was going to marry him <laughs> so just, just to be completely candid so yeah. uh, I, <laughs> I, I didn't and I stayed so that's good. Yeah. I was surprised that he left but he left in stages he kept coming back remember to get bring Nancy back his girlfriend or yeah, it, it, there yeah. was a lot of drama. It was like, I can never say goodbye. I mean, he was so Detroit for someone yeah. who wasn't a native,
2: but he always talked about, you know, he always talked about, ah, so one of these days I'm going to, you know, Detroit sucks. And I'm one of these days I'm going to go to New York, you know, and, and he, he seemed to think New York was the, you know, the summit of a, American culture and the culture he loved jazz and publishing for that matter. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I went to, I went to, back to New York because I had a girlfriend there who was, you know, I the long distance relationship wasn't working. And, and at one point, Oh God, a couple of weeks before I left for good, I had gone to New York and just spent like 10 days there kind of trying to patch it up with her. And I didn't tell anybody where I was going. And, and I didn't tell Barry Kramer. We didn't have cell phones in those days. So it was hard to track you, track you down. And then I just <laughs> kind of came, came back, I, you know, What an asshole I was. And so Kramer decided he he would dock my pay. And I said, no, no, fuck off with that. You know, the pay wasn't much anyways. And so, you know, when he insisted, because he was Barry and he he was right. And I wasn't there for 10 days. And uh, so that's when I stormed out, you know, left at midnight in, in my $65 car, which barely made it. And then I found this apart. I was—I forget how long I was in New York. Maybe six weeks. Maybe a couple months. I was living on couches and all that stuff. And then I found through a friend of a friend of a friend uh, an apartment for. It was really like it was like 180 bucks on the edge of the uh, of the village in New York. It was on Sixth Avenue, 542 6th Avenue between Fourteenth and Fifteenth Streets. And I went. There had been a blackout in New York. And I went to look at the apartment in the blackout, and the guy showing me around with the flashlight, you know. (laughs) And I'm like, "Fuck it, I'll take it." I knew that, you know, I knew that there would be hidden wonders in the place, but, but I'm like, you know, forget it. I got to take it. It doesn't matter. A blackout, and uh, so I took it, and and it was a shithole, but it was $180, and and then after, oh, I don't know, a week or two, I called Lester and I said oh, oh, I know the guy next door. I guess he died. (laughs) There was an old guy living next door and he died. And so there was an empty apartment. And so I called Lester and I said, dude, you're always talking about coming to New York and, you know, I'm going to go take over New York. I said, well, I got the cheapest apartment in New York right next door to me, but we'll have to put a deposit down on it or something right away. And so he says, you know, I said, I can put $50 down or whatever." Whatever it was, and he uh, he says, "Fuck it, do it. I'm coming." That was what pushed him over the edge. You had this wonderfully cheap apartment in a fifth floor walk up. Hot water was intermittent. You know, (laughs) it was cockroaches and and mice. And uh... it's probably
4: worth millions now.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, it's it's, funny thing, it's not, and I don't know, but because. I walked by there one day in recent years and it's every time I go to New York, I go buy it. It's this, it's still there because the, the guy who owns it, who was about my age, but he inherited it from his, from his Italian immigrant father and the mother didn't speak English. And they were all very, you know, they didn't want to, they would never open their door to anybody. And I saw. You know, I saw him sweeping up outside. Now he has white hair. And, uh, wow. In wow. fact, my daughter went to, to college in New York, and I, and I wrote him a note saying, hey, how'd you like to, you know, rent an apartment to my kid? And uh, he never <laughs> answered, you know. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's not a million dollars. It's still this hovel. And his, his father had decided he wasn't going to sell out when they were building a big apartment building around the corner so it's great amazing that's great
0: yeah this we come to the obviously the sad part of the story my memory is that a little over a year after my little pilgrimage to five four two Sixth avenue lydia lunch called me from new york to to tell me that lester had died and it was uh it was such a shock to me i mean i didn't know about his well i don't know anyway so i mean you both you have both talked and written about about this and uh, when you were you were there robert if essentially and you saw it coming i mean that you talk about uh, an experience of coming home one night and he's slumped outside on the street you know i un- unconscious with with drink so you can can you would you mind just talking about the, the those last few months in lester's life
2: you know i i, I think i said that in the, that interview but i you know, it, it ceased being any fun being a, to me being around lesser because it seemed like the situation had gotten so dire. It just seemed like there was no way he wasn't going to kill himself with drinking and pills or combination. You know, drinking was a was the fundamental part of it, I think. And I remember saying to our mutual friend and uh, John Morthland who had been interim editor of Cream at one point and who gave who hired me for my editorial, whatever I was, copy boy position when I started at Cream. And uh, I said to John, who I had, I had, I didn't talk to Lester anymore. I was mad at him. He had done some, sh- he kind of said some shitty stuff to to me I, I, about the girlfriend I was, I had gone back to New York for, who was not Ronnie, my wife, you know, I it was this shitty stuff. And he did, he, he had this, he liked to, he liked to be mean sometimes he had a mean streak. And so I'm like, all right, well, fuck off. You're being mean and you're no fun to be around anymore. I don't want to see you killing yourself. So I hadn't been really, I mean, I was living next door to him. It, it, when we started, we always left our doors open and it was kind of like mm-hmm. we could both, we could just, hey, go in and get something out of the fridge. <laughs> and that had started our decline. I think I never got over I One time I was out in one of the clubs in New York and it was like, you know, five in the morning and Legs McNeil said to me, the guy from Punk Magazine said to me, hey, I took your beer out of your fridge. And I'm like, what? And I knew that he had been hanging with Lester. So I came home and, you know, my a six pack of beer was missing and uh i mean my only six pack of beer and you know at five thirty in the morning you want a drink right <laughs> and, uh, so i i remember i picked up this we had these things these police locks in new york and they were about uh four or five feet long and they wedged into the floor and into the door and that's how you know so somebody couldn't push in your door and i had it just kind of hopped on the corner and i I was, I yelled, you motherfucker, Lester, you shit. And I threw the, the the police lock, you know, thing. It was about, oh, I don't know, inch wide of, of iron. And I threw it at the wall just to, you know, just, I just out of anger. And the, the fucking thing went through the wall. And so it's just kind of half of it's in Lester's apartment, half of it's in my apartment. And it's like spronging like you know an arrow, you know. And I thought, oh man, I hope I didn't kill Lester. Standing near that wall. So but it was about ten seconds later, and you could it was like a comedy routine. And again, this is five thirty in the morning. Comedy routine. Lester, you know, ten nine eight seven six count to 10 and suddenly Lester slams open his door and comes over and starts pounding on my door to, to the point, he was a big guy. Uh, and uh point where it's, you know, bowing in, in toward me. And I eventually I'm like, Oh fuck. And I threw the door open and we got into this, this fight where we were knocking over <laughs> chairs and tables and the refrigerator and, and my wife was there and she's like, you know, screaming and, uh, Eventually, we were like the two most out of shape men in New York, and we were fun. You know, we, it didn't <laughs> last that long, so we're finally two fat drunks sitting on the floor. And uh and, and Lesser wanted to make up, and I'm, you know, I shook his hand, but I'm like, fuck this guy. So that's yeah. the the prelude to to, to I, I I hadn't been in touch with him, but he walked by my door every time he came up the stairs. And as Jan knows, he had a very distinctive walk, and he kind of he kind of stumble walked. And when he, when he walked up the stairs, it was always sounded like he was falling down the stairs, but he somehow, he somehow got up the stairs and this was, you know, with or without drink, but add, add drinking or drugs and he would, he would go down. So, you know, I just, I told John Morland. I said, look, we dragged him in the, in the building the other day and I think we're going to have to tr- take his body out, uh you know, in the future. And, and Morthlin who had his own problems uh, was like, yeah, yeah, he was completely skeptical of this, uh, of this diagnosis of the situation. But, and then eventually, you know, uh, regrettably I was right. And uh, and it wasn't that long before that landlord knocked on my door and said, "Uh, uh, there's something wrong with Lester and got me to come in the apartment and Lester was dead. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. John, do you remember the last time you spoke or communicated with Lester?
1: Well, uh, about, uh, I don't know if you know the story, I Probably, uh, we've probably talked about it before, but prior to his dying is he had a dream of his parents. His mother had died shortly before Lester and his dad had died in a, a fire, a house fire when they were teenagers. And in the dream there were three doors and he opened one door and his dad was behind it. He opened the second door and his mother was behind it and he couldn't open the third door. And that has stayed with me all these years. It was like in the telling, it felt like he was, he was next, like he was predicting his own death. It was really, really harrowing. I mean, I don't know. Again, when Griel Marcus was interviewed, for the cream documentary and he talked about the lester he knew it was so much different than the lester i knew like i didn't know that he was that depressed or he felt like a failure and he hadn't written his novel yet and mm. you know everything was a waste and i don't think that that trajectory had anything to do with his drinking you know he always drank he just got older he drank more i think bob you said this too like in new york he was a celebrity he'd go to a party and he was like an oddity and everyone would would buy him drinks and see see, it's almost like he was a dancing bear you know (laughs) right it's true so so whatever happened you know i i think that that dream and i i have to say i'm i'm a little more than the average metaphysician i mean i i tend to see things like that that meant thing but that dream just always always spoke to me that you know he he couldn't open the door and what would have happened if he dreamt that he could open the door? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, he, he was gone a week later, so. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know
2: and the thing is, he had quit drinking. Yeah. He, had, he was on the wagon for, I, I don't even know how long. but and, That, was, and that was, was, like, was
0: what we heard. That was the yeah. story that, that circulated around, like you know, people like Nick Kent. I remember yeah. that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And he's still, you know, like, like apparently like a lot of you know people who do that he fell off the wagon and he fell extra hard because his you know his tolerances were down yes and he
1: had the flu too he had the flu and he took two darvons probably the same dose he took prior to you know giving up drugs and you know it was it was too much of a dose
0: yeah right right good night ladies
3: Ladies good night. It's time to say goodbye.
0: At this point, I think we probably need to talk about the audio interview, and we've chosen this because they were one of the New York acts that Lester really loved, Suicide. In fact, my my memory is he wrote the liner note for the little raw cassette, the half-alive. Cassette that, that Raw put out. I, I couldn't find it anywhere. It's not online, but I remember loving it. Him sort of talking about suicide is really they really uh sort of got the point. You could you could feel the sort of cesspit of of, of New York in their music. And so i was just going to ask Mark to, to to introduce that audio.
4: Sure, Suicide are in London in January '98. In fact, I've just proofread a rather bad review of them playing that literally a few days before this re- interview. Andy Gill interviewing them, and he starts off talking about how he saw them playing Sheffield with The Clash and how they were effectively mm. bottled off the stage. And then he kind of goes back to how they met uh, Martin Rev's jazz roots, how they evolved their the, the sound. Well, listen to the first clip and how they developed this sort of confrontational attitude towards audiences.
5: You deliberately have a, a kind of a confrontational style? In a way, yeah, I did. I, my, my idea was to, in, those, in the early days of the 70s, people used, my idea was you go see a group, like some musical thing, coming off the streets, the nasty mean streets, and you're going to get yourself entertained. My idea was to turn it right back. Coming off the nasty mean streets and you meet the nasty mean suicide, the street. In other words, you're not getting entertained tonight, buddy. You get in the street, man. You, yeah. get, you get where you came from. You, yeah. I get... Uh, it was never to entertain. It was
2: maybe to educate, but
4: never to entertain, you know? Big black city.
2: Big black city. Oh, baby. Oh,
4: baby. He talks about the Silver Apples, who they identify rightly as a predecessor group to what Suicide did. He talks about the New York music scene. He uh, talks about how television didn't like them very much and vice versa. Uh, They talk about the word punk and how they coined the term punk before punk rock per se. Let's have a listen to this clip, Jasper.
5: Yeah, you, you did something, uh you know, punk music mass
1: or something? Or something? Yeah, we yeah, were really the really first guys
5: so. in the world to use the word, man, you see. Yeah? That's the thing. That's Actually, the word. 71, man, we could to a thing called a punk music mass. So and up until then, nobody ever used the, used the word punk in association with anything, man, you know. <laughs> That's just a negative word. If you yeah. were punk, you were a guy that was too scared to fight, man. pumped yeah. punked out, man, you know. <laughs> but uh, I like the word, so. Yeah. so we were say, punk music mass. We did an art gallery, a famous art gallery. Big big gallery at the time, and... Uh, we, have, we still have some, he, he still some of the flies sort of the thing. So, anybody wants to ever argue with you? Because since 1971 of this thing, man. Yeah. And uh, we don't, I don't give a shit, man. I don't, everybody else in the world already, has claimed. It's already in one of the books or something. That's why we read it. I've got it, it's a Sleeve Ducks, yeah, it's already in one of those books, the punk diaries. Oh, really? mentioned, is it? Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. So you were the first one to turn about yourselves rather than... Yeah, it was the idea to be a punk movie, for God's sake. It was just like, I like the word, I like the punk music mass, punk mass, it just doesn't go with one another, what's a punk mass, you know, it's just a poetry thing, whoever would thunk it. You know, five, six years <laughs> later, there's a punk movement in yeah. I mean, I like, think it's it, punk movement. It's, like, unreal. But I don't care. Everybody else has laid claim to using the word first. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean it's Richard Hall. Richard Hall, legs, big
1: needle. Yeah. Yeah, like. How about this one? Uh,
5: about 20 different people laid claim to that. But yeah. I never said I did. But yeah, there it is. I don't have that do my one here. I mean, who cares
4: anyway? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the inimitable New York tones of Alan Vega there. <laughs> uh, it's, it's fantastic indeed. They're a very engaging couple of guys. For some reason, they start talking about the movie The Full Monty. They're huge fans of it, which is not what I was expecting to at all. They talk about electronic instruments. They talk about what they wrote about. They talk quite extensively about their second album being produced by Rico Cassette. They talk about their futurism and they look, they're sort of looking forward. They're saying, well, now the computers and technology, you know, the the, the DIY ethos that they espounded in many respects is becoming easier for many more people to to use. We'll go out at the end of the, the podcast with this fantastic clip about how they chose the name Suicide, which is pretty splendid stuff. But it's a really, it's a really, uh, it's a really engaging and interesting interview. I, I, I ended up liking them a great deal. To listen
0: to Robert, do you, do, you, do you ever remember Lester talking about suicide or talking in general about like the CBGBs and Max's
2: scenes? I mean, Suicide, a capital S or lowercase uh, uh, ca- capital S. I, S yeah, S. <laughs> capital
0: S in this case. Yeah,
2: I don't yeah. remember either either one, but I remember him. You know, he would. He was always. He was big on just like he Detroit sucks. He was big on dissing the scene in New York, and you know, whatever Lester. You know, liked to talk shit, and uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I remember him complaining a lot about the scene in new york i don't remember suicide in particular but uh
0: did you go to shows together at cbgb and
2: oh god at the beginning yeah, um, yeah, uh, yeah. I, i'm sure we did yeah. yeah uh i mean we were just hanging out all the time at the beginning and new york mm. was great because in in detroit we hung out all the time we went out every night and then when he got to new york it was great and then his girlfriend arrived from Detroit finally i forget what what the gap was but and then he kind of he cleaned up his act it was it was a little bit like wow you're kind of boring now yeah. <laughs> i mean lester sober would could be kind of all that sweetness would come you know, maybe get a little, uh, get a little too sweet, you know. <laughs> uh, but, so, and, and, and in the meantime, I had lost my girlfriend and I had completely gone down the tubes. And I remember when Lester came and Lester and, and Nancy came and rescued me from the Bells of Hell, which was the bar in New York on 13th Street. We, we all hung out at, oh, just all the, all the rock writers hung out there. Again, I'd gotten in a fight and I got my ribs broken and I, but of course I didn't go to the hospital. I, I, I went to the bells of hell, uh, <laughs> where I was laying in the, in the, uh, you know, in the banquette and, uh, and Lester came and found me and, and, and rescued me and, and got me home. But, anyways, yeah, that had something to do with the New York scene.
6: <laughs> yeah. yeah, he writes about in this. I added this piece this week of his free jazz punk rock that he wrote for Musician in April 1980, and he writes a bit about CBGBs and about what he sees as like this this free jazz punk rock fusion that's going on. And he mentions like television and and CBGBs and all that stuff there. And he's he's like totally drawing a line from Albert Ayler down to. Lydia Lunch and it's yeah. it's it's fascinating. Yeah, but I'd say that's a Detroit
4: thing. I mean, this is exactly what the Stooges and the MC5 were talking about. They were absolutely about Uniting the three yeah. jazz players with right. rock and roll. So that, right. Goes, that goes right back to back He to says, there. the
6: first real deal punk jazz mix I heard around this town came from the recently disbanded Richard Hell and the Voidoids and mainly from their lead guitarist Robert Quine, a brilliant musician who has somehow yeah. figured out a way to combine mm-hmm. what Lou Reed was up to in I Heard Her Call My Name, James Williamson's guitar work on Iggy and the Studio's Raw Power and a heavy dose of the Miles Davis sound that began with On the Corner and grew into something genuinely new. So yeah, it's absolutely. But it, sure. it's it's a great, I love, I love like making Albert Eiler the oh, figurehead yeah. of Lydia lunches, you know, Aide Spy <laughs> and stuff, and, and James Chance and the Contortions. Yeah.
2: That's the other mm-hmm. thing about Lester. He he knew mu- his area of music, which jazz and in particular free jazz, but jazz in general, bop and and free jazz was were re- he knew his stuff. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. knew his stuff, and he 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 was not a poser at all. He really stuff that was really challenging. He really liked even metal machine music. You know, Lose album. He would put that on in the office, and you know you want to be cool, so you can't say "shut that shit up, Lester." We <laughs>
1: no, you want uh, You want to be cool. He actually he liked it. No, I, I but, more, think he liked but more it. so, he used the stereo was above his desk, right. so he because he was a reviews editor, he took command of it. With that kind of authority, but he would make us listen to it for five hours. Like, you think I exaggerate? I do not exaggerate. Five hours of that was like when they were blasting Metallica to like Iranian. Right. Like, right. Like, uh, like, right. Wars. <laughs> yeah. oh,
2: oh, Nicaragua. Manuel Noriega, right. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so that, that's what it was like. He would do that all the time. Again, my taste are at odds, except for the Detroit punk. Or the I actually like Albert Eiler, and I do like Miles, but all the other stuff I, I okay maybe, I like Tangerine Dream, I like Can, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. the Metal Machine Music is really what what got us.
2: Yeah, it was it was it was tough. I like that album. Do you? Oh, you,
1: that yeah. you it? yeah. It's meditative after a while. Uh, you know. I
4: find it really interesting. Yeah.
1: <laughs> really? It's texture. Oh, I, it's just texture. Yeah, it is.
2: It, it's. I've it, never gone back to it since I had. <laughs> okay. it, you know? <laughs> Perhaps I should, or you know, but I'm not gonna. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but you know, it, it, it's here's a weird thing. After Lester died, you know, the the cops came and the paramedics, anyways. But there was like cop, one cop stayed to kind of you know protect the scene cause they still had to do some kind of investigation. And he was, he start, he says, Hey, do you mind if it says to me, cause I'm there, I'm the only other guy there. And he says, you mind if I look through the records, I'm a big music fan, blah, blah, blah. And he eventually pulled out an Albert Eiler record and said, you mind if I take this?
3: Hmm.
2: And it was like, well, first of all, it was horrifying. Cause it was, oh, shit, you know, this is like the vultures have landed already. The guy was like a sweet guy, too. And I had to think about it. I wrote about this in Loudmouth, and I, but I thought, well, Lester would want this guy to have it. So. Yeah. But it was funny. It was Albert <laughs> Eiler.
4: Not yeah. what you'd expect a New York yeah. cop to fish no. out. And- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No.
2: Yeah, no.
0: It's been so wonderful talking to you about Lester. Thank you for, for just sharing your memories of his work and him as a person. It's been really special for me. I have to say, and I hope you will stick around because we're just going to go through. Mark is going to talk us through the the f- favorite pieces that he's added. Jump in. If, You feel the urge.
4: Yeah, going back a couple of weeks, um, the wonderful Maureen Cleave, who listens to this podcast and I'm a huge fan of, writing for the Evening Stand in 1965 on The Righteous Brothers. She meets The Righteous Brothers. She says, Bobby Hatfield is the shorter of the two, with a round face and a gap between his front teeth. He was going to be a baseball coach until he discovered he had an exceedingly high voice that gave excruciating pleasure to small children and dogs. (laughs) <laughs> Bill Medley is tall and has a long, thin, lugubrious face with no appreciable distance between the eyes. Uh, <laughs> 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 Wonderful. I, I just love that. So, 1968, Pete Johnson, the LA Times, reviewing Laura Nero, Eli line the 13th Confession. I'm only referring to this because anyone who listened to our podcast with Richard Williams knows there's some debate about how to pronounce Laura Nero's name. "Living the- Nero. The very first, yeah, the very (laughs) first line of this review is, Laura Nero, the name rhymes with that of the Roman Emperor, has come up with two (laughs) albums in the last year and a half. So there we go. That's that sort of stuff. He also says, this is a major album from a major talent. Whether it is better than the first, there is a considerable difference between them, is irrelevant, because both are excellent portraits of a superior singer and writer. So... Here, here. That's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, bri- bri- brief mention of Ferris Saunders. Written about Albert Isler. I mean, this, we're in a sort of similar territory. Philip Elwood, San Francisco Examiner, in 70, says, His sax tone is grainy and full, like an enlarged half-tone photo. That, think, <laughs> really, oh, that's, <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> lovely. Nineteen seventy-seven. Nick Tosh is talking to George Jones for High Fidelity magazine. George Jones says, "I've used strings. I went along with the record company against my better judgment." When you use strings and horns and all these things, you just don't have country music anymore. You abuse it. Nick writes, for George, the idea of being a star is silly. Like putting cellos in country records is silly. Like being interviewed when you could be oiling your elementary tract is silly. Uh, so that's a splendid bit of
0: tosh. <laughs> just, just a sideline question. I mean, I've always been intrigued to know what the relationship was like between Bangs and Toshes. Well, you had
1: Meltzer in there too. They were like the three three amigos, you know? Yeah, yeah. It was competitive, but close, but competitive. Right.
2: Right. I know Lester was a big fan of Meltzer's, uh, but but Meltzer would diss Lester for imitating Richard. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, well, there's, there's
4: a book to be written there, really. Oh, isn't yeah. It? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Taking us up to this week, Robert Shelton sees the, well, the Grateful Dead, the Seventh Sons, and the Jeff Beck group at the mm. Fillmore East in 1968. This is a pretty famous show where reportedly Rod Stewart hid behind the amplifiers half the time. It's their new debut. Robert Shelton doesn't mention that but he he does say uh the group's principal format is the interaction of mr beck's wild and visionary guitar against the hoarse and insistent shouting of rod stewart with gutsy backing on drums and bass their dialogues are lean and laconic the verbal ping-pong of a musical pinter play <laughs> i
6: can't say the jeff beck's group and harold pinter sort of you know, comes to mind <laughs> on that review i'd go and listen to it but... <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
4: norman Jopling, record mirror 1972 goes to the bickershaw festival which is uh, another mud patch festival he did not enjoy himself at all he says maybe you could ignore the mud and the discomfort and the rotten stinking chemical food the loose swimming with shit vomit and urine, <laughs> and people wandering around who should have been locked away, the sellers of instant paradise, and worse, all the other people like you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we had Norman <laughs> on on the
0: podcast, and he was, uh, he, he'd been a kind of, you know. A mod. spivvy mod in the 60s, 70s. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> the idea that he'd been at Bickershaw, I, I mean, obviously, I was too young to go to Bickershaw, I'm very grateful I didn't go to to Bickershaw. But even for someone of my vintage, Bickershaw had a sort of notorious reputation, Mm. didn't it, Mark? I mean, it really was, exactly as Norman
4: described it. Well, yeah, I mean, Elvis Costello was there because he talked very fondly with Jerry Garcia about when there were jointly interviewed by a musician, and he talks very fondly about that. I mean, I saw The Dead in the same tour. My memory is mostly about The Grateful Dead and not the festival itself because there were so many in those days. It seems like every other month was another ghastly festival run by idiots, you know. It's just just hell. Moving on to 1974, Rolling Stone, Paul Gambaccini, explaining British glam rock to his American Mm. readership, which is confusing, I suppose. And he interviews Chinichap, you know, the, the mm-hmm. writing production team. And they say, about Susie Quattro, we also wrote Can the Can about her. We thought about her image, her past, and what a band could play. She says, I don't mind if the guy's in a band are butch. They just have to be butchers than me. <laughs> and then Chinichap's very prickly sort of attitude. They say things like, Led Zeppelin have respect, and we get called the sausage factory of hits. We get fuck all respect in this country. And also, uh, Nicky Chin says, we're no more a hit factory than Richard Perry. And he has respect. Gamble and Huff have respect. Why don't they think the same of us? It's very interesting. I love all this pretty prickly stuff. I, know,
0: I mean, Jan, I know you interviewed Zeppelin a few times. I have this memory of Nikki Chin telling me that he was at Tramp or some London nightclub. And Robert Plant demanded that they put on, I think, and Blitz. And and Nicky Chin thought he was taking the piss, and and Nicky uh, went up to Robert and said, "Oh, you know, look, I know we're not cool and we're not." And Robert said, "No, I really love this record, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, which, uh, a, which is a lovely, lovely story. Um, <laughs> but I just wanted to touch briefly on Susie Quattro mm-hmm. because she was obviously a a motor citizen. Did you, did you ever have did you yeah. have any interaction either of you with Susie?
1: I went on the road with her, but even more so when we were teenagers, we were dating the same guy, which happened in a small town like Detroit. But yeah, I, I know Susie Quattro and the whole Pleasure Seekers family pretty well. Okay,
4: because <laughs> her father was a kind of mover and shaker in the Detroit music business, wasn't he? A promoter and so no, on. No, her, so her
1: brother Michael. Oh, Quattro, right he played the organ and he was a promoter and he was just a lunatic you know but <laughs> but you know interesting a very colorful family like and yes. his, his sister patty was in fanny after i forgot which fanny girl left but but patty went on to be a fanny member as well sure
4: I think a couple of last things. Wesley Strick Circus, he goes on a photo shoot with kisses. Gene Simmons. Gene Simmons, of course, has been remarkably unpleasant as always. He says, (laughs) well, I love push-button technology. It's sexy. You push the right button, it turns on just like a girl. Uh, Oh. You know, uh... And he'd still say that
0: in this day uh, days, and age, wouldn't exactly. he?
4: <laughs> and lastly, new, a new writer got on board. We're very, very pleased about it. Kath Carroll's just joined us. and She interviewed Divine for the Enemy in 1985. And Divine says, I've been dragged over the coals for not just one reason, but three, because I look different, because I'm fat, and because I'm labelled a drag queen. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good piece. It's really interesting. So that's my lot. I'm going to mention one quick thing because it just ties
0: in I to. Someone sent me a piece that Paul Morley, NME Legend, mm. wrote for Time Out in 1988, and he's just taking stock of the state of music journalism. And he says he compares. This to, he talks about writing that's pretty Frithy, <laughs> as in Simon Frith, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then and then and then writing that's a bit bangsy uh, and then he says I like to think I belong in the latter category the acceptable face of common sense because I've already used three eyes in this sentence I suppose I must be a bit banged up <laughs> <laughs> in the end there were five eyes in that sentence it's enough to make you want to interview yourself Morley did in a sense take the kind of Bangsian subjectivity to such an extreme but he's another you know
2: another yeah, yeah. British love- rock
0: writer who who, who drew from that well
2: i just want to say about simon frith if he's listening uh,
4: <laughs> here
6: we go
2: i know i still owe you 20 pounds <laughs> and i, I have the- and i have for like 40 years or something i lester introduced me to simon and i was in england with my wife and we were on our honeymoon with the blue oyster cult and we split off and we we decided we would go up to oh i anyways we went up to the <laughs> we went up to the north of england because the the guy from the bells of hell had had a uh, had a baby and we took the you couldn't send a picture of a baby through the internet any in, in 1978 but um <laughs> but i remember i went to we we stopped at simon Frist's house and stayed overnight and i i was we were actually flat broke and I finally had to say to Simon, can I can I just borrow just a little bit of money, a little tiny bit of money so we can get to the airport? And he gave me, you know, 20, 20 pounds. And I said, yeah, I'll pay it back. Well, I, I didn't have any money for a long time. So, uh, so <laughs> I still owe him that money.
0: That's, this podcast is rapidly becoming a, a, a place where people can come clean about money there. We had Vashti Bunyan on the last episode admitting that she'd never reimbursed Donovan the hundred quid.
4: She, he gave her to buy that horse and wagon. Yeah, but the thing about that is if Donovan hears about that, he'll be back on with her
2: about it. <laughs> with,
0: with compound
4: interest.
2: <laughs> oh, really? I, hope, I hope Frith is not that way. No, no he's he certainly, not, so. certainly not. Certainly He's a Absolute
0: so send
6: sweetheart. It. Sweetheart. Send it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'll let him know. I'll let him <laughs> That's know. Great. Um, Jasper, That's what really have you super. got for us? It may not be initially kind of obvious why the connection to, to Bangs, but I wanted to mention a, an Aphex Twin review. Because actually I think I think Lester would have dug Apex Twin. Yes. But so John Doran is reviewing the collapse EP for the Quietus in September 2018. But he sort of it's he accidentally reviews it from the Gwenap Pit in Cornwall, which is this like natural amphitheater with these extraordinary acoustics. And he he sort of lies down there and listens to this album there. But he comes up with this whole abstruse concept of like where music writers should write from or shouldn't. The Cornish landmark is also clearly a heterotopia, literally an other place, a world within a world, mirroring what is outside in a disturbing, intense, incompatible, contradictory, or transforming way. So I'd imagine that this would also cloud my review. Should music writers be forced to ply their trade from locations that are defiantly non-other, from locales that are the antithesis of the disturbing, intense, incompatible, contradictory, or transforming, written in a place? You know, it just goes it goes into this thing. I hereby found the school of the heterotopic review. All copy shall be filed from a submarine stationed under the ice shelf, from a maximum security prison, from the king's chamber of the great pyramid of Giza, from the large Victorian glasshouses at Kew Gardens, or from the damp grass on the lowest tier of the Gwennap pit on a cloudy late. August morning, it, it just I I just love it, and it's a it's it's a super review, and 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 I love Aphex Twin, so I just wanted to get that mm-hmm. in there. And I really do think you know Lester would have seen something in that that man Richard D James is absolutely crazy yeah. music. Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. That's it. I'm going to leave it there.
0: Oh, that's it. Okay. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end of what's been a wonderful episode. Thank you for joining us from California, John yeah. and Robert. Thank and you. Thank
2: you for having us. Yeah,
0: it's been it's been absolutely it, wonderful.
2: It really has. It's been great.
0: Thank you. you. So it remains for me to ask Mark to just to talk us out with that last clip from the suicide
4: yes, audio. Yes, them choosing their name, capital S. Capitalist <laughs> yes
0: yes it's pretty funny this so well listen thank you so much and we'll say uh, goodbye to all our listeners goodbye bye. bye thank
1: you bye Lester yeah bye Lester <laughs> <laughs> bye Lester what do you pick the name suicide I mean it's uh, it's a
5: lot it's we of thousands of names Yeah, we went through we, we didn't need to, we were doing a gig. Each one was more hilarious, we were having, we're having a blast making up we names, and we were laughing arresting. You know, yeah. had to get funnier and funnier as you go, like, go along <laughs> night. <laughs> get further and further
1: away from it. the next day
5: we were reading, you know, a comic book right. saying Satan's suicide, We lived down to suicide. Just came out of that way in the house and the said, We both knew this this the word it just had a great sound to yeah. it, we had to yeah. do the gig like that weekend it just about called suicide. It just sounded felt right perfect. We didn't think intellectualized about it, What yeah. it it just had that energy and that rock and rollness about it. And yeah. It had never been used. And it just fit right with the way it New York fit. was in those days. and We weren't feeling suicidal, but the city was looking suicidal. I mean, yeah, the yeah, world right? the Vietnam War, you know, all those it's things. Not, were, yeah. Those yeah. connotations. Yeah. So like, yeah. We it, said the word suicide, we went like... Wow. To it's exactly what the name. That's yeah. the worst thing we ever chose believe me, they like, what the of us for years. But couldn't get yeah. us on the radio... We made people crazy. They said, this is what I was doing. Black leather jacket. and suicide. People would stop and fuck with phone things of dream, dream dream. Baby, dream. dream, baby, dream. dream, baby, dream.
6: That was Alan Vega and Martin Rev of Suicide in conversation with Andy Gill in 1998, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guests Robert Duncan and Jan Uhelski. You can visit Robert's website at duncanwrites.com and find more of Jan's writing on her RBP Writers page. Those are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper, Murris and Bowie. The Rock's Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at